Hey kids, uh, look at the picture on the front of your bulletin. Who is this guy? And why does he look so strange? Who is this? Yes? It's King Nebuchadnezzar, and we are going to read his story right now. So 32 years have passed from chapter 1 and the original dream that was interpreted by Daniel and this dream interpretation, which now comes in chapter 4. Strangely enough, it comes in the form of a testimony. That's why I entitled the sermon, Nebuchadnezzar's Testimony, How an Attack of Humility Led to Sanity. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and the peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, all the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From, every, from it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Just curiously right there in 15. Daniel never interprets what's the significance of these iron and bronze fetters. So if you um, have a good suggestion, I would be interested to hear it. Uh, Continuing, uh, let let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of peoples. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of these wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also, he's called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. 
So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are the tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. And skipping ahead to 24, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your kingdom by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass for you, pass by for you, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. You notice how that phrase gets repeated. That's the, one of the major themes. The Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone that he pleases. Hmm. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Here we have someone who has reached the pinnacle of success. He has achieved a level of, of power only a dozen or so people in the history of the earth have ever achieved. Standing atop his palace, looking over arguably the greatest city that had ever been constructed. After all, one of the 
seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging, ba- the hanging gardens of Babylon. He, he was more of an architectural genius than a, than a military genius. But he creates uh, this urban metropolis. The walls of the city of Babylon were reportedly so wide that you could drive a chariot with a horseman on top of them and he could do a U-turn in the middle of the walls. There's green park-like space in the middle of a metropolis that proportionally would rival Central Park and Manhattan of today. He is the master of the universe, the, the commander of his fate, and then his life crumbles to pieces. And what's incredible about it is after it is all said and done, he's glad it happened. (laughs) He praises God for having ruined him. Here you have a man who has gone through hell and back to be cured of his pride, and he says at the end of it all, praise the Lord for the trip. That really does say something to us, does it not, about uh, how diabolical is our human pride and how inestimable the value of a broken and contrite and humbled heart is to a human being. What I'd like to do this morning is address several remarkable features about this story, and then we'll come to the main point of pride and its cure. I'll give you a hint. Our main point, I'm going to utilize the story from the voyage of the Don Treader, where someone else turned not into uh, a cow, but into a dragon, kids, if you remember that story. But first off, uh, first remarkable feature, I think we should marvel, we should marvel at the fact that Daniel so willingly, competently, and freely served this king who, for all rights, intents, and purposes, ought to have been his bitterest enemy. Nebuchadnezzar, after all, was responsible for the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, for the complete destruction eventually of God's holy temple for the death and deportation of thousands of Israelites. If I were to tell you in a dream that a godless man who had grossly oppressed you was like a tree that would be chopped down by an axe in judgment, you and I would inwardly cheer at such uh, a dream and interpretation. Would we not? We would say, thank you, God, for letting me long enough for my eyes to see Thy judgment upon uh, my enemy, um, on this beast of a man who raped and pillaged your holy city and burnt your temple. Hallelujah is what we would say. But if you look at verse 19, Daniel's response, he turns white as a sheet. He blanches. He, he, can, he can barely bring himself to deliver this news to the king because he is so internally troubled by the fact that this actually is what is the fate of the king. He offers this forlorn wish that the dream would somehow apply to someone else, apply to the king's enemies. So great is Daniel's love for his, for, for, so great is Daniel's love for his enemy, for the person who ought to have been his enemy. Two weeks ago, Jesse Duplantis, a television evangelist from New Orleans, announced that God had told him he needs a new $55 million Falcon 7X private airplane. So he went to YouTube soliciting donations from his supporters because, quote, if Jesus was on the earth today, you don't think he'd be riding a donkey, do you? 
maybe because I'm a pastor, I, I get especially riled up by televangelists. But personally, I can find nothing, nothing quite so distasteful or further removed from the teachings of Jesus Christ than the prosperity gospel televangelists who have no gospel at all. They're heretics. And I'm sure I take a personal offense to it because they give us pastors a pretty bad name. And I also know that I feel really pleased when they fall. When those guys perched atop their, their high and lofty TBN networks face plant, uh, as is often the case, they fall into some sexual sin, they're caught with their pants down. I know that I secretly gloat. I rejoice over that. They are enemies of God. They're enemies of the gospel. I feel like they're kind of personal enemies to myself. Should we be glad when our enemies crumble into pieces? More practically, if you work for a boss who is just absolutely unbearable to deal with, or if you're under management or administration that's constantly cutting you down or making unreasonable requests uh, of you... uh, It's hard not to gloat when those guys get it. It's very easy to imagine a bitter, disgruntled Daniel who has a real antagonism in his heart towards his Babylonian employers and especially his Babylonian king. I mean, maybe you've heard it said that love your enemies is only a New Testament doctrine. Oh, no. Like, this is one of the coolest examples of it in all the Old Testament. Remember the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, love your, en- your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And right now, what you ought to do is picture that person or persons in your mind. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. For God causes his, his Son to rise on both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet and bless only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. But be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's how he ends this section. Second, because Daniel loved his enemy, and because of a couple other things I will mention, he is now able to speak a penetrating and sharp word to a politician in power. Look with me at verse 27. He says, incredibly enough, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Only Nebuchadnezzar never asked for any advice. He just asked for an interpretation. We all know that if you start to give unsolicited advice to a king, especially this kind of advice, you are probably on thin ice. Be pleased to accept my advice, your majesty. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. See, what is he saying here? Nebuchadnezzar's sin in the eyes of God was not merely personal delusions of grandeur. Rather, it was injustice and oppression of the poor of his kingdom. So the word that Daniel gives to him is not merely uh, have a more humble heart, confess your sins, and change your mind. It was, in essence, 
Change your politics. Change your kingly policies. You must replace exploitation of the poor, the dark side of the kingdom of Babylon that you have just glorified in that great statue. You must uh, replace exploitation with justice and kindness. As one author puts it, we should not miss the tremendous drama that's going on at this point in Daniel's life. Here was a mere government servant standing before the head of state of the most powerful country in the world of that day, challenging this man in the name of God on the whole social and economic direction of his state policy. People have lost their heads for less than that, right? John the Baptist, he lost his head for for merely criticizing a petty king's marriage. And Daniel not only challenges this dictator, this this head of state, to repent, he does so with the explicit threat that if he does not, he will face humiliation. That's quite incredible. I mean, to have that kind of courage, I don't think I would have that kind of courage to go before a king and say that. But that is consistent with the man he has already demonstrated himself to be, isn't it? Through the first few chapters of this book. So here's where I think the storylines of the previous chapters tie together. You think back to Daniel chapter 1 and the first sermon I preached in this series. You think back to the three yeses that Daniel and his colleagues gave to the, to, to the whole Babylonian enterprise at that point. They said yes to a Babylonian education, yes to Babylonian assimilation and enculturation, and yes to service in a Babylonian administration. And all of those three yeses, which are very counterintuitive yeses, end up meaning that Daniel is in the right place and the right time now when a prophetic word needed to be spoken to the people of power. Like if he had not said yes to things that, frankly, we probably would have... I guess we wouldn't, maybe we wouldn't have found him questionable because of the words of Jeremiah that we read in the first sermon. But uh, debatable, if he had not said yes to those things, he would not have been in a position to speak. On the other hand, if he had not said no to eating the king's meat or no to bowing down to the graven images, if they had not you know, established and lived by a firm, firm moral conviction at those moments, and he probably wouldn't have had the courage to speak such a sharp word now. So what I really think we have going on here is, this is an example, if the first point is an example of loving your enemies, the second point is an example of the wisdom of God that is being lived out in a secular world. This is the wisdom of God on display. Like these guys, it really vindicates their decisions of the previous three chapters to say yes sometimes and to say no in the world at other times, to keep a critical distance so that you can confront and sometimes to just keep your mouth shut and, and live to fight another day. How do you know when to do that at work? Uh, it takes a great deal of discernment, doesn't it? But the encouragement that we have from the passage and from all the scriptures is that the same spirit of wisdom that was in them is the spirit of wisdom who resides in you. It's Christ's spirit. Thirdly, let's look at pride and its cure, which is the main point of the passage. And we'll start with verse 30. Actually, yeah, let's start with um, verse 29. 
God gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to act upon the word that was delivered to him by Daniel. And it seems, according to verse 29 and 30, that he never repented. He never did so. It says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as those words... Where am I? 20... Even as those words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven in an act of poetic justice. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. It will be driven away, etc., etc. See, Nebuchadnezzar had these grandiose visions of being superhuman. He was, he was great. He was the greatest human. He was, I guess he was Nietzsche's uh, Ubermensch, you know, the superman. And so in an act of poetic divine justice, he becomes subhuman, lower than human, a beast of a man. The technical name for the mental illness that he is suffering from is boanthropy. I've never heard of that one before. Boanthropy, where somebody, and it has been observed by psychologists before, somebody imagines themselves to be a cow or a bull and won't be confined indoors but goes outside and eats grass like an animal. And that's what happens here. God utterly humiliates this man. God will do that from time to time. Jesus Christ, it says, he, he humiliated the Pharisees. God will humiliate the proud if necessary. If there's no other way to bring you or me to a place of a broken spirit, then he, he will be um, drastic if necessary. Normally he isn't, though. Um, Normally he's a little more gentle, thankfully. (laughs) And that leads me to the great story of the voyage of the drawn treader and the story of a little boy named Eustace Scrub. Eustace, uh, by the way, who's read Voyage of the Drawn Treader or seen the movie? You must must read all of the Chronicles. It's great. Uh, Eustace was a snot. He's a very self-centered irritable, ill-mannered, rude, selfish boy that nobody likes. But at one point in the story, he uh, discovers a cave full of treasure. It happens to be dragon treasure. And immediately he realizes he is rich beyond his greatest imagination. And he will be able to go back to England and get back at, you know, enact vengeance upon all the kids at school who bullied him around and all the adults who uh, bossed him mercilessly. Eustace just cannot wait to get back home and take all of his treasure and set himself up as a little king. But in the story, he grows tired and falls asleep. And those of you who are well-versed in fairy tales know that when anybody who falls asleep on a dragon's treasure with dragonish thoughts in his or her heart, they turn into a... And that's what happens. Eustace wakes up and discovers he's a dragon. If you remember the story, actually... Eustace, he doesn't like being a dragon. Now, you would think if you got to become a dragon, uh, you would you'd be a very powerful uh, creature. You'd be like smog, and uh, you, would, you could eat all the lambs that you wish in the world. What ends up happening for Eustace is, like Nebuchadnezzar, he is separated from the rest of humanity. You recall that? He's no longer able to communicate with his friends. They think that he's a monster, So Eustace is no longer just like Nebuchadnezzar. He is isolated from the rest of the human world. And he he thinks that it looks as though he is doomed. He thinks it's curtains for him when one night he wakes up and is greeted by 
Aslan. Eustace tells what happened in his own words. I looked up and saw the very last thing I was expecting, a huge lion coming slowly towards me. It told me to follow it, and it led me a long way into the mountains. So at last, we came to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before, and on the top of this mountain, there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything in it. In the middle of the garden, there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything I thought I, could, I had seen. And if, I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease my pain. But the lion told me I must undress first. I was just going to say that I can't undress because I, I don't have any clothes on when I suddenly thought that, you know, dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins off. So I started scratching myself and my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkly and scaly again. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means that I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, And this underskin peeled off beautifully. And I stepped out and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bathe. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt when I did it, and there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as I peeled, as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Now oh, that's interesting, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After it, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone. I turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in in new clothes, the same as I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly, I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, said Edmund, it was definitely 
not a dream. This is an allegory, of course. And I think, you know, Lewis uses this as an allegory to, des- to describe Christian conversion, how a person comes to faith, to saving faith in Jesus Christ, how we cannot do so through our own self-efforts. Uh, what do you think the, um, the, the well represents? It obviously is a representation of baptism. Um, what do you think the clothes represent? We'll talk about that in a minute. But I think it also is, is very applicable to this matter of pride and its cure. There are three things Eustace discovered that I think are really, as I said, applicable to all the Bible has to say about dealing with our human pride. The first thing was that he couldn't take his own skin off. Or he could, but it was only a temporary and superficial solution. As many times as he tried to take his skin off, it would come off, but then there would always be more. And isn't that true of pride? Have you ever, truly, have you ever uh, found somebody who was able to make themselves unproud? If you told me I I just need to pray four times a day, uh, I just need to bow towards Mecca and get on a prayer mat, I I could do that. But I... I can't make myself unprideful, or if I do make myself humble, then I'll be proud of my humility, and I'll be no better off than I was at the beginning. I don't think it's possible as a human being to take off your own prideful skin. Second, the second thing that Eustace learned was the lion could go deeper than he ever was able to go. And it is only when Eustace submits himself to the pain of having Aslan cut him with his huge sharp claws that Eustace is finally freed. So how does Christ cut us? Um, I do believe that Jesus, I do believe he brings frustrations and our, our own failures in life to bring us to the point that we, like Eustace, will lie still on our backs. I don't think that frustrations and failures are the actual cutting. I think, could be wrong, but I think they are what get us to just kind of get on the operating table. They're what make us ready and available to receive the spiritual surgery. And I wonder if there may be things that are frustrating in your life right now that you haven't thought of them in those terms, things that might be presently vexing you, which are actually God's tools to make you lie still and have him cut you. Very often he cuts us like this. So D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, quote, the only, There is only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is... To contemplate the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. When we survey the cross, that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, we are humbled to the dust. When you really survey the cross, like every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to me, I am here because of you. Like, I am here because you're really not that good of a father. 
I really am not. I was having a conversation with somebody this week, and he was, uh, uh, he was lauding this other guy who was just the best father in the world. What a great spiritual father and dad. And I was thinking to myself, oh, God, um, don't you feel that way, dads? Like when you survey the wondrous cross, he says, I'm up here because you really are, you are not that good. Nothing else can can pour contempt on all your pride than to see that it is your sin I am bearing, your curse that I am suffering, your debt that I am paying, your death that I am dying. Nothing in history and nothing in the universe will cut us down to size like meditating on the cross. I know there are other things that he uses, um, but why don't we just focus on that, that one? Then thirdly and lastly, Eustace had to let the lion clothe him in new clothes. He never exactly tells us what these new clothes are. Is it um, the righteousness of Christ? I'm, I'm clothed in his royal robes. Is it a new identity that I have in Christ as a beloved son and daughter of the Father? Or is it, as the story goes on to show, Eustace seems to be clothed in a complete other-centeredness? No longer is he absorbed by himself. And that's what Lewis, I think he says in Mere Christianity, that if you and I were to meet a truly humble person in this world, we wouldn't come away thinking of how humble they are. They wouldn't go around telling us how they were a nobody, or uh, they certainly wouldn't put on any airs. But you would just walk away noticing how much they seem totally interested in you, and nothing else, and not themselves. You see, humble people are clothed in a kind of self-forgetful, open-hearted, other-centered focus, which is just free from the knots of self-absorption that we usually uh, traffic in. Jesus knows how to make us this way. He knows how to change us proud people, uh, if it can happen to Nebuchadnezzar, it can probably happen to anybody. The next time you think that there are hopeless cases, there are no hopeless cases if this man is able to be humbled. Look with me in the front of the bulletin. This is where I want to con- conclude. I thought it was a cool juxtaposition to have our beastly Nebuchadnezzar with these words from John Piper. Friends, Jesus came into the world to convert people from godlike dependence on self and godlike glorification of self to childlike dependence on God. He died to pay the penalty for our pride and to show us the way to humility and to send all our boasting toward God and not toward ourselves. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven on this Father's Day, again, we, we're so grateful for your fatherly care and for the table, your fatherly table that you invite us to come and share. We pray that as we do so this morning, you would revolutionize our proud, arrogant hearts and make us into men and women whose spirit is lowly before you. Christ, we say to you, undress us and clothe us pour contempt on all our pride, and clothe us 
with other-centered love. The other-centered love that you possess and have is the center of your being and the blessed Trinity. Blessed be, praise be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Amen.